This week on the Back Table Podcast. One really key is to get them off the vestibular suppressants. That's a real crutch, and there's a real fear of getting off of the Valium or the Meclizine. Unfortunately, many of our colleagues in primary care and even in geriatrics leave people on particularly Meclizine for much longer than they should. So it's a real hassle to get them off, but it's very important because I think you really want them to be able to be at their best from a vestibular function perspective. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Back Table ENT podcast. We're a podcast that focuses on all things otolaryngology, and we've got a really great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Back Table ENT podcast. I'll be your host today. My name is Ashley Agan. I'm a general ENT, and I'm joined today by Dr. Sujana Chandrasekhar. Welcome to the show, Sujana. Thank you so much for having me back, Ashley. Yeah, so you joined us for episode 87. We talked about sudden hearing loss. So for those of you who have not heard that episode, go back and check it out. Today, we're going to talk about labyrinthitis. But before we get to that, let me introduce you for our listeners who don't know you yet. Dr. Sujana Chandrasekhar is an otologist, neurotologist practicing at ENT and Allergy Associates in New York City. She has made many contributions to our field, serving as president and past chair of the Board of Governors of the AAO HNS and serving as current president of the American Otological Society, the AOS. She is a past Eastern Section VP of the Triological Society and the Combined Sections Meeting Program Chair and Consulting Editor of Otolaryngologic Clinics of North America, where she records a podcast every issue with guest editors. She was the co-executive producer and co-host for She's On Call, a webcast of 59 shows from June 2020 to December 2021, covering COVID-19 and a breadth of other medical topics. And all those shows are available on podcasts as well. So welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really love Backtable. And I love my Backtable t-shirt because it makes people ask me about it. And I'd love to talk about it. Awesome. Thank you for being a listener and thank you for being a guest, a contributor. So I reached out to you today to talk about labyrinthitis, particularly because about six months ago, I had labyrinthitis and it was a pretty horrible experience and very eye-opening being on the patient side of it. And so I thought this would be a good opportunity to kind of dive into it and kind of talk more about it. So I guess we can kind of walk through it and I can kind of add my patient experience as we talk about it. But just to kind of set the stage, so what is labyrinthitis? So I think you started setting the stage perfectly, right? This is so scary. You're one second ago, perfectly normal person. And then the next second, you're dizzy, spinning out of control. Up is not up and down is not down. And you're not really sure why your bed is swirling around, right? It's really, really scary. Generally, nobody has nothing to do that day. So whatever you were supposed to do that day, you're not able to do, which is also very frightening. And you can understand that acute onset of spinning vertigo takes people to the emergency room, right? This is the big one in our minds. And it's really, really frightening. And you kind of even smart people 
with medical education and even people with medical education in this area, like you, are like, whoa, what's happening? And I remember you and I talked about it at that time. Yeah, it was crazy. I, I had had like a little URI, like minor, little sore throat, little runny nose, like probably something my daughter brought home from daycare. No big deal. And then, you know, the next morning, my right ear, like just started feeling like a little stuffy, like I couldn't clear it. And then as the day progressed, it just felt like it was filling with like fluid. It was starting to be more painful. By about 5 p.m., like I had this little like almost like a little pop and like a little drainage of fluid from my ear. So I was like, oh, great. Like I ruptured my eardrum. Maybe I have an otitis media. Maybe I have an ear infection, whatever. So I went to work the next day had one of my colleagues. I was like, will you just look in my ear and see what's going on? I think maybe I ruptured my eardrum. And she like looked in there and suctioned it out. And she was like, this looks really bad. Like, I guess I had some like, some like bulla on my eardrum. And she's like, kind of looks like a bomb went out. She's like, I think you probably need to get an audiogram. Like, this seems bad. And my audio had, I had a little bit of a mixed loss in the high frequency. So she's like, I'm going to call you in some antibiotics and steroids. So I went on lunch. I went to go pick that up came back and finished my afternoon clinic. And then I looked over at her and I was like, I think those steroids are kind of upsetting my stomach. I'm feeling sick. And she and I looked at each other and I was like, or, <laughs> or this is turning into something much more than just an otitis media. And from that moment, the spinning, it just, boom. It just, and I just, I started throwing up and that lasted for like, a solid three days maybe or more. But yeah, that was kind of like the evolution of it. I remember vividly because it was almost like a play-by-play. I was like, oh, great. Now, now this is happening. And then when, once that started happening, I was like, oh, no. Because once that, I mean. Oh, it sounds like you had a bullous meringitis, which is a viral inflammation, right? So luckily for you, and luckily for the vast majority of people who get labyrinthitis, it's a viral phenomenon and not a bacterial phenomenon because bacterial labyrinthitis, which we should just talk about and put to a side, is horrendous and it can take out your inner ear. And people who get bacterial labyrinthitis often post meningitic cases or chronic otitis media cholesteatoma cases. Those are the people that we rush to put in a cochlear implant within a few months so that we don't end up trying to drill out an ossified cochlea, right? Those are the people that are going to lose their ear for hearing and for balance. So that timeline becomes very, very rapid in terms of imaging and intervention in order to end up with an ear that can hear something. And often very well, like if you get that cochlear implant into those patients in a time when there is still a membranous labyrinth to introduce, they do much better than if you're drilling out bony channels. So luckily, the vast majority, well over 90% of labyrinthitis, which is interchangeably used with vestibular neuritis or vestibular neuronitis, there's like, as you and I talked about in the past, it seems like everything in ontology has at least three names if not more. So these are often interchangeable because we don't really, we cannot tell you the site of lesion is in the labyrinth or along the 
vestibular nerve or even along the superior or inferior vestibular nerve. We just know that it's a peripheral vestibular itis, right? So the vast majority are viral, which means that they don't demolish the ear and they are recoverable. And we start to see recovery, initial recovery, in about three weeks. And most people have uh, full recovery by three months, like the, the outside limit. If you're older, if you have some underlying balance disorder, if you have peripheral neuropathy, if you have cataracts, if you have glaucoma, if you have something else that's going to affect your balance system, it may take you longer to recover. But in general, even though it's absolutely horrific and you remember every minute of that episode as if it happened yesterday, the full recovery happens pretty well in these patients. So the bottom line is to identify that it is in fact a peripheral vestibular lesion, to give supportive care, and then to institute physical therapy, vestibular therapy, so that you can get back to normal. For you, Ashley, vestibular therapy was being a doctor, being a mom, running around, doing your things, which is fine, right? For people who maybe are a little bit older, maybe on blood thinners, right? Somebody that you really don't want to fall down. A great exercise, vestibular therapy for them is to take a shopping cart, go to the grocery store, push the cart up and down the aisles as their walker, and then look up and down. I tell people, tell me how much the Cocoa Puffs are on the top shelf on the right. Tell me how much the ramen costs on the bottom shelf on the left and go up and down. And what they'll find is they may be able to do one aisle or two aisles the first day, but by the end of the first week, they're really able to do like half the store. So I think that's a really nice home exercise for them and certainly engaging people in programmatic vestibular therapy really does help. Yeah, I went to physical therapy. I had an amazing therapist. Shout out to Agla Richards. She was amazing. I was in vestibular physical therapy like the next week. I couldn't have walked in the grocery store looking up and down and all around for a while. <laughs> but but it did finally get better. But it's, yeah. it's just, yeah. But backing up, so, you know, you and I usually see patients outside of the acute phase. Because like you said, most of the time these patients are presenting to the emergency room because they're like, oh my God, I'm having a stroke or oh my God, something really bad is happening. So I feel like in my practice, patients will tell me about, oh yeah, I had this horrible vertigo thing and I was in the ER and now I'm still kind of dizzy. You know, they're in that like kind of next phase of it. For the physician who just happens to be seeing the acute phase, you know, in that first 72 hours, what is your exam and workup, you know, like, is there anything that needs to be done as far as testing or otherwise? You know, a lot of it is the history and just kind of confirming that it's vertigo spinning type of dizziness. Right. So I, I agree with you. I think the emergency room physicians see the acute vertigo, the acute labyrinthitis more frequently than we do. There are more and more integrated health systems where somebody who comes into the ER with something like this actually gets sent to ENT pretty rapidly. So I think when that happens, that's a win for the patient because 
the ER's job, and I keep telling my patients this who come and say, oh my God, I went to the ER and they didn't fill in the blank, right? And I'm like, well, their job is to make sure you're not having a heart attack or a stroke right that second. That's it. That's their job. And they did their job very well, right? So we have the luxury, even with a sick patient, to say, okay, let's really look at your peripheral vestibular system. Let's see if I can make these distinctions based on clinical examination. So you want to get the history, and obviously you want to do an ENT head and neck examination. You want to, at the very least, do tuning fork testing of their hearing if you don't have access to an audiogram. And sometimes they're just really too ill to have a formal audiogram. I mean, if you hadn't had an audiogram before that vertigo started, you would not have sat there. You would not have been able to be tested for four or five days, right? I mean, it's just not possible. But you can do a nice 512 hertz tuning fork test. Just do Weber and a Rene. Just make sure that there's some hearing in that ear. And then you want to, as best as possible, do some vestibular testing that you can do, that doesn't require really any machines. And I must tell your listeners, the best article on this is written by Joel Goebel, and it's the 10-minute exam of the dizzy patient. And it is excellent. He just breaks down really complicated vestibulo-ocular, vestibulo-spinal, central peripheral vestibular disorders into what are you looking for and what bucket can you put the patient in? Because you want to say, is this a central bucket or a peripheral bucket? And in this case, in an acute vestibulopathy situation, you're really looking at peripheral being vestibular or ear as opposed to oculomotor or something else. So what you want to do is once you've examined the patient and you happen to have what I think was bullous meringitis, which is very common after a URI, very common with the blebs, very common with a little bit of mixed, a little sensory neural component, like everything you're telling me sounds like that. But often with serous labyrinthitis or viral labyrinthitis or viral neuronitis or vestibular neuritis, <laughs> which are all the same thing, you actually don't see much of anything. Maybe they tell you they had a cold a couple of days ago. Maybe they didn't. But you want to see if there's an acute otitis media. You want to see if there's something to do to give you a clue. But then you want to start looking at the eyes in particular. So if you're ready, we can dive into the thing that makes everybody really nervous. I remember when I was when I was a resident, my chair, the late Dr. Dole Cohen, asked us to write an essay on nystagmus and like what it meant and how you look and this and that. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote because I am nothing if not a nerd and able to put lots of words on paper. And he just returned that paper to me. He was left-handed with left-handed handwriting on top in red. And it said, where'd you come up with this idea? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know. I guess I thought it made sense when I wrote it down. So I think we have a tendency to make things seem more complicated than they are. And it's beautiful to understand the 
complexity of the central and peripheral vestibular system, but for the patient in front of you and for your own sanity, if you want to talk about not burning out, simple things that allow you to truly break it into buckets of central versus peripheral are very, very helpful. So you're going to first start by looking for a spontaneous nystagmus. So you're just going to have the patient sitting in front of you. You're going to have them with their best corrected vision. So if they wear glasses or contacts, they should be wearing them. And just look for, at rest, do they have nystagmus at zero degree with their glasses or their natural vision? And then you can put Frenzel glasses on them and see if you remove visual fixation. So the Frenzel glasses, if, if nobody knows, are sort of like Coke bottle bottom glasses, right? So they really just remove the visual fixation so that your eyes can't compensate for whatever baseline nystagmus is going on. So you just say, is it present or is it absent? So normal people don't walk around with nystagmus. So then you're going to say, well, is it a jerk nystagmus or is it a pendular nystagmus? So is there a fast and slow phase or are both phases very similar to each other, which would be pendular nystagmus? And then you're going to say, is it directional? So is it a vertical nystagmus? Is it a horizontal nystagmus? Is it direction changing or direction fixed? So if you have them look to the right, does it stay beating in the same direction or does it change directions when you have them look over to the left? Is there an effect of fixation? So if you put the Frenzel lenses on, does it change? And then is there an effect of eccentric gaze? So if you have them kind of look up and out or down and out, does something happen to the nystagmus? So this is sort of, it sounds complicated, but if you make it almost a recipe for how to check, you can actually figure it out. So what happens? Either they have no nystagmus or, which is normal, or in peripheral pathologies, the nystagmus is an acute peripheral pathology like labyrinthitis, spontaneous, it's direction fixed, meaning that it doesn't change direction when you look right or left. It's usually horizontal or rotary. It's usually a jerk nystagmus with the fast phase being away from the site of lesion. So if you think about it, it's jerking away and then slowly compensating back to the site of lesion. It's usually enhanced with gaze in the direction of the fast phase or when you remove visual fixation with a Frenzel lens, right? So I'm going to say that again, just because this is the part where everybody gets kind of like crazy. So again, for peripheral, acute peripheral lesions, you're going to look for spontaneous, direction fixed, horizontal rotary nystagmus. It's going to be a jerk type of nystagmus with the fast phase away from the site of lesion, and it's going to be enhanced with gaze in the direction away from the site of lesion, so in the fast phase, or if you put Frenzel lenses on. If that person in front of you with the acute vertigo and acute dizziness and vomiting and so on and so forth has a central brainstem or cerebellum issue, they're going to have direction changing, horizontal, 
or pure vertical or torsional nystagmus. It's going to be pendular. So you're not going to be able to say, oh, there's a fast phase or a slow phase. They kind of look like the same. And again, it's reduced with visual fixation. And then we have the patients with congenital nystagmus who do, in fact, walk around with nystagmus. And they have variable waveforms. They're always horizontal. And you can reduce that when you make the eyes converge or look at a null point. You can have them fixate on that. So I think looking for nystagmus just by looking at their eyes is really important. And then there's more testing, but I'm going to let you kind of chime in and then we can talk about that because this is the part where everyone's like, oh my God, oh my God. But the reality is if you're able to do these tests in the office or in the ER, you can really help the patient understand what's going on. You can understand what's going on and you can institute care in a very timely fashion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because if the physical exam is pretty consistent with a peripheral lesion like a labyrinthitis, then you don't need the stroke workup, right? You can go down a different pathway. So you can pretty confidently lean on this exam, yeah? Very much so. And I think when, when you see the changes that look more central, I think that's really important to act upon that. But for the most part, these are peripheral abnormalities. Anything else that you do? You do the head thrust or right? So there's a few. <laughs> so you can look for the alternate cover tests of ocular alignment, right? So you have the patient just kind of looking at you, and you cover one eye, you cover the other eye, and you look for skew. So if it's an otolith lesion, so it's a vertical ocular misalignment, right? So the vestibular tone is wrong. So if it's a peripheral lesion, you'll see a transient skewed deviation with the lower eye on the side of the lesion. But acutely, that may be absent. Like you may not see that in the acute phase. With central lesions, this is usually associated with head tilt and an ocular counter roll. You'll see the patient sort of compensating for it. You want to look for gaze-evoked nystagmus. So we just talked about nystagmus at rest, right? Spontaneous nystagmus. But we do take our finger and put it in front of people's eyes, right? What you don't want to do is stress the system. So when you're doing gaze-evoked nystagmus, you want to go 20 or 30 degrees horizontal and 10 or 20 degrees vertical. You don't want to go all the way to the end of the visual field because actually we have physiologic nystagmus at the end of our visual field. So if you're looking for gaze-evoked nystagmus, you're going to see direction fixed, which is more obvious in the direction of the fast phase, which we said was away from the site of lesion. In central nystagmus, you're going to see that that gaze-evoked nystagmus is direction-changing, you could have rebound nystagmus. It's a little, it's a little funny looking. And nystagmus that doesn't seem to point to either one side or the other, you really do have to think about central phenomenon there. You know, on VNGs, when you guys order them or read them, you'll see all this saccades and smooth pursuit testing. 
And for VNG, they do it with lights on a light bar in the office. You can, again, do it with your finger or you can have some dots on the wall. And really, if these are abnormal, if they can't do smooth pursuit properly or have really jumpy saccade testing, like going from one dot to another dot to another dot, those are really central findings. If there are saccadic intrusions, they are sometimes reported with paradineoplastic syndrome, but often with anxiety. So people who are just kind of like weaked out by the test. You can check for dynamic visual acuity. So you have the patient hold a Snell and I chart and you see where they can read the chart comfortably. And then you rotate their head at about two hertz constantly like this while they continue to read the eye chart. So normal people lose less than two lines of visual acuity on the eye chart. With a unilateral vestibular lesion, they lose two or maybe three lines. But with bilateral, they lose more than three lines. And then it's quite variable with central. But think of how you felt that first yeah. three days. Yeah, <laughs> you're not doing I this I would have test. refused to do that. Yeah, you'd like, been nope, like, I will it. just vomit. <laughs> yeah, you'd be like, I'm just going to vomit on you if that's okay. <laughs> Pretty much. But again, <laughs> if you have, and, and again, if they're taking a vestibular suppressant, which is often given to help the patient overcome this, you're actually not going to have the findings manifest. So as much as you can test them without vestibular suppression, it's really very helpful. I'll tell you, even if you can do only some of these at the acute injury, but then you see them five days or seven days later, and you can do the rest of the testing, it's actually very helpful. And it gives them a sense of, look how much better you did on the eye chart. Look how much better you're able to track my dots or my finger. You want them to do, if you're worried that it's a central phenomenon, right? None of us want to treat somebody for labyrinthitis when they're having a cerebellar ischemic event, right? So there are cerebellar tests that we all learned on our neurology rotation in medical school, right? So you have them finger nose, right? So you have them touch their nose, touch your finger, touch their nose, touch your finger, and you move your finger in a, in a way, and they should be able to do that really accurately. And if they're shaking or they're quite not making your finger or their nose, that's a cerebellar finding. Same thing, you can have them take one heel, start at their opposite knee and come down to their shin, right? And just that should be able to be done smoothly for the most part. If they cannot, and they have no peripheral, you know, they have no leg issue, that's a cerebellar finding. Do you know what my favorite word in medicine is? I don't. It's dysdiadocokinesis. It's like the <laughs> coolest word ever. It has a Y, it has a CH, it has a K. It's awesome. And I remember learning it from a neurology professor on a rotation up at Harlem Hospital. And I'm like, that is, patty cake is basically the test of dysdiadocokinesis. And I love that. So that's where you have the patient sort of essentially play patty cake with themselves and make sure that you can they can do palm down, palm up in an alternating fashion. And if they can't do that, that's a significant peripheral sign. 
And then you're going to look also for fine finger movement. So you're going to basically have them take their thumb and touch their fingers in alternating. Just have them do this, where they're just basically finger to four, three, two, one, one, two, three, four. And that should be able to be done without difficulty. So if you have a dizzy patient without a really significant unilateral ear pathology, and all of these findings look abnormal, you're really looking at a central dysfunction, an acute central dysfunction. And I think that's a really important bucket, right? So you really want to very much know. And then you want to look for Romberg testing. So this is later on, right? So this was you maybe two weeks later. Okay, can you do sharpen Romberg? So what's a sharpen Romberg? Put your feet as together as possible. Cross your arms so that you're essentially hugging yourself and just stand straight. And then you as the examiner should stand on either side of the person with your hands out, not touching them, but ready to catch them should they start tipping over. And then you say, okay, now close your eyes. And you will find that as a young person like you, Ashley, compensated, you would find that you swayed more maybe week one and a lot less week two. And by week three, you really didn't sway at all. Sometimes people do fall over because they're so bad. So you really, I mean, unless you like picking people up off the floor, you should probably catch them. And there, there are, in fact, I mean, posturography is a great way to identify people who uh, may have aphysiologic sway, right? Because we know how much is physiologic sway. And so if there, there's a secondary gain or there's some other reason, you will find that it's a very, if you test enough people in your office or in the clinic, you will find that you can recognize physiologic versus aphysiologic very readily. Um, and you can find that with the Romberg. You can find that with a Fukuda step test, which is where you have them stand with their feet sort of shoulder length apart, you know, just, just normal stance. Their, their arms are now at their side, so they're not making themselves as small as possible. Oh, you can make the Romberg a little bit more challenging by having them put one foot in front of the other or cross their feet. I know that you're supposed to do that. I have never really found that helps more than anything other than it freaks everybody out that they're going to fall down. But for the Fukuda, they're very comfortable stance. And then you have them just march in place and you say to them, okay, when you're good and ready, and again, your arms are at either side, you ask them to close their eyes. And if within about 15 to 20 seconds, if they turn, they are turning toward the weaker side. The strong side is pushing them. So they will turn towards the weaker side. If they just sway or if they just feel very off balance, it's just sort of an uncompensated vestibular dysfunction, but it doesn't tell you a side. You can look at gait testing. And one of the really good tests that we've incorporated from the physical therapy literature is something called the timed up and go test. So what you do with that, it's a great test for falls risk. And this is really important as we're treating an older population and a population that's often on some sort of blood thinner. 
So this is now later on in the course, right? This is not the acute phase, but later on in the course, you have the patient sitting in an armchair and you have about 10 feet or three meters marked off. And you say, okay, get up from your chair, walk over to that distance, turn around and walk back and sit down. And there are timings of how long that should take and the risk for falls is twice or thrice or even five times depending on how long it takes them to do that, if they can do that effectively. And that's actually a great test for even an intake nurse to do in an admission to see if there's a risk for falls of this patient. There's some other kind of cool tests. If you're thinking that this is a superior canal dehiscence, you can take a 512 hertz tuning fork, you can vibrate it on their mastoid and see if you induce nystagmus or dizziness. You can put them on their medial malleolus in their leg. And on the ipsilateral side, you can induce nystagmus or, and or vertigo with ipsilateral significant superior canal dehiscence. That's kind of a cool thing to do. Like if you think that's there, you should try it. It's kind of fun. And then the last thing I wanna say is you can have somebody hyperventilate for about 90 seconds have them put Frenzel lenses on. And if it's a peripheral non-irritative lesion, you're going to have nystagmus with the fast phase to the unaffected ear, to the normal ear. If it's a peripheral irritative lesion, you're going to have fast phase towards the affected ear. So that's actually a very helpful test if they don't pass out. Yeah. It's like 90 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> Long time. <laughs> um, and then if it's a central lesion, it, you know, it's not a it could be a variable finding. But, but you know, these sound, literally these tests take less than 10 minutes to do, and they are so beneficial in helping you understand what's going on with the patient. Yeah, and so for your patients who you've determined that this is a labyrinthitis, what, like, if you do happen to see them in the acute phase, like, what do you give them? Like, I think I, you know, I had Zofran and I had Valium, we had started steroids because my that that mixed loss. What else do you? I just remember during that first those first few days, I just was just laying there perfectly still because anytime I moved, I would throw up. Yeah. So supportive measures are the most important thing. So the ondansetron or Zofran is really really beneficial because what you don't want is now to compound this with some dehydration, malnutrition kind of acute picture, because it is not at all unreasonable to stick an IV in somebody who's not able to keep anything down and just get them hydrated up because that really does help. So I think on Dancitron, and I like the orally disintegrating tablets because it's really impossible to vomit those up, right? So you just stick them on your tongue and just lie there. And within about five, 10 minutes, it's absorbed into your body. So it's working no matter what happens afterwards. I tell my patients to take the ondansetron first, wait about 10, 15 minutes, and then take their Valium. And Valium or diazepam is really an ideal vestibular suppressant. So what you really want to do is rest the vestibular system and allow the compensation to start and then as the compensation begins, you want to dial down and off the vestibular suppressant because the longer you stay 
on a Valium or a Meclizine, the longer it's going to take you for full recovery. So the acute phase, extremely beneficial. I like uh, the diazepam much better than the Meclizine. Most of my patients will tell me that all the Meclizine seems to do is make them sleepy and, and dull, whereas the Valium really suppresses the vestibular response. What dose do you give of that Valium? It depends how sensitive people are. Five milligrams is actually a very nice dose, and it kind of puts most people to sleep anyway, which is what you want. You'll find that the patients find the one position where the world is spinning the least, and they just stay there. So if you see them, they are just sitting like a mummy with a with their head tilted in a certain way, and they're just sitting there, and they're talking to you like out of the corner of their mouth because there's no way they're going to move their head or their eyes to uh, look at you. And I think, I mean, I've had patients who are tiny little people, like they're they're like my height, five, four and a quarter if I stand up tall and they're half my weight and they're taking like 10, 20 milligrams wow. of Valium. <laughs> so, I mean, each person is very different. I think if you gave me five of Valium, you could, on a Saturday morning, maybe you could wake me up on Monday. Like, I don't know. <laughs> So I think five is a very good number. They can actually break those in half. So if it's too much, they can take two and a half. But what you don't want is you don't want them to keep taking it because then they really do fail to benefit from our vestibular system's ability to compensate, right? So you want them off when it is feasible so that they can start compensating well. Steroids, absolutely. And I think I've mentioned a few times that we often see viral neuronitis or vestibular neuronitis or vestibular neuritis or viral labyrinthitis in older individuals or people on blood thinners. So you want to be really careful because the steroid will definitely help them get better faster, but also can contribute to some bleeding and some injury. So you want to really work with their physicians, their diabetics. Nowadays, with people being able to monitor with that new device that they put on their arm and really be able to manage their glucose better, it's actually easier for otolaryngologists to prescribe systemic steroids to these people because we're not running a real risk of really throwing them into a diabetic crisis. But you know, you want to really remember that we're doctors, right? And we need to care about the whole thing. What dose of steroids do you like to do? So I'm a big steroid girl. Like if you had nothing going on in terms of your ear exam or your audiogram, I probably still would have given you around a milligram per kilogram per day of prednisone. So I would have given you between 40 and 60 milligrams of prednisone at least for the first three days, four days. The sudden hearing loss dose, as we talked about, is like seven days and then you taper some people give it for 10 days, but often you just need that acute jolt of anti-inflammatory to get people down, and then you can start tapering that off. I think, again, a mentrol dose pack doesn't do it for this degree of inner ear dysfunction. So I would stick with the higher dose, but I'd probably taper it off more quickly than I would for a sudden hearing loss patient. Ondansetron, we talked about vestibular suppressants, and the ondansetron is amazing. You could give it three times a day for the nausea. You could actually give it as often as you feel like. Some people take 
eight. Most people are fine on four milligrams of the orally disintegrating tablets. There are some old-fashioned remedies that your grandmother knew, like ginger candy, ginger teas, things like that that settle your stomach. I often will tell people, take the Ondansetron, take the Valium, and then eat something and drink something, because that's the ideal time when you can keep things down and then just be. I tell them, this is not the time to really watch TV. This is the time to watch a blank TV. Like you don't want to stimulate your vestibular system in any possible way. And then as soon as possible, you want to get up and at them as soon as possible. And if it's just when that Valium and Ondansetron have kicked in, when you've eaten something, try to maybe walk to the table and sit down and eat something and then walk back and assume the position that you're most comfortable in. But there's a lot of data about 24 hours in bed deconditions all of us about five to seven days worth, right? So now we're not only suffering from our vestibular dysfunction, but we also get acutely deconditioned. So the more that the patient is able to do something, the better. And I absolutely am so glad that you got into vestibular PT because that really, really helps that immediate compensation. And then it helps the activities of daily living compensation, right? Because the fear of falling makes you more more likely to fall. If you can't cross a street in a crosswalk looking both ways as you're moving forward, you're going to be stuck just like living on your block, right? So I think these are things that where our physical therapy colleagues are just outstanding in terms of compensation and full recovery. Yeah. I mean, just having someone to, I think when you have an appointment on your calendar, it makes you do it. It's like you have to, it kind of, it's because you just don't feel like doing it. And you have to do your home exercise program. Yes. I just had this big, I have dialogues about home exercise program with my patients all the time. I'm like, it's pointless to go twice a week if the other five days you're doing nothing. So you really have to do it. You have to push yourself it's like any other PT. And the more you do it in a normal fashion, the better you'll be. You know, for somebody like you who's running, whose life is full of vestibular exercise, you can almost incorporate those home exercises into your daily living, right? But there are people who really do shut down and get so scared, and they really have to be encouraged to do their HEP. Yeah, it's pretty humbling to where the, the exercise is, okay, stare at this dot and move your head back and forth side to side for, you know, a minute, three times a day. And it's just so uncomfortable to do that, that I remember having to like work. I'd be like, okay, like got to go do my physical therapy. But over time, I mean, you know, now we're, we're six months out and I don't think about it anymore. Like it was the increments of improvement just teeny tiny every but that was another nice thing about going to physical therapy is that they were able to really show me like look like how much you know you couldn't do this last week so they were great in follow-up for these patients so for me I saw my colleague and dear friend Walter Coots took care of me and I, I saw him about five days after the initial onset and so you know I came into clinic and we went ahead and repeated the audiogram 
because I was noticing that my hearing had really dropped. And so at that time, I was kind of around 50-55 all the way across, purely sensory neural at that time. And so we went ahead and treated it like, you know, a sudden loss. And I got three round, you know, a round of IT steroid injections once a week for three weeks. <laughs> and just because of the amount of loss, how quickly would you bring someone back in after like an acute labyrinthitis? I think a week time frame is makes a lot of sense, probably one to two weeks. If they notice that their hearing is not getting better or getting worse, obviously they need to come in sooner. This is a place where if they're really not feeling well, the mobile phone testing is actually very beneficial. So out of all bad things come a couple of good things, right? So during COVID, when people were homebound and access to care was limited, we identified that people really could do a home hearing test enough to let us know if they needed intervention or not. So I think that can be very beneficial even with a televisit if they're really struggling to come in and they're not sure they need to. I think Walter did the right thing for you. I think then you just treat it like that sudden hearing loss because we'd like to recover your hearing and your balance as best as we possibly can. And we know that between 40 and 60 dB, particularly mid-frequency but across the board losses, are very steroid responsive. So about four to one odds ratio of improving that hearing if steroids are introduced. And that could be oral, but you were already on oral. So then the correct thing is to add intratympanic to that. I think if in the normal course of events where perhaps you're not seeing that sensory neural component, because I think you had a cause, some often we don't see a cause for the viral labyrinthitis, particularly as long as they are improving and you can touch base with them and yes, they're getting better and now they're able to go to PT. I think seeing them at intervals is very helpful. I will tell you that more than any other inner ear insult, viral labyrinthitis leads to subsequent benign paroxysmal positional vertigo more often than does Meniere's or any other type of labyrinthine insult. So it's not unreasonable that several months later, they say, oh my God, now if I turn over in bed to the right, everything spins. So just be aware that you may have to treat BPPV in these individuals in the future. And again, once they know where to go for their vestibular dysfunction, the anxiety component is much less, right? If you give people a little bit of power over their symptoms that they know, oh yes, now I have to call Dr. Shaker because now I'm having vertigo again and I want to get better. And she said, if this happened, I'm supposed to come back and see her. I think that's very beneficial. I'll just tell you as an aside, there's some, we don't really write about it, but there's some small number or small percentage of post-APES patients who will develop a little viral findings. And then a few months later, they're like, they present with this BPPV stuff. And you're like, oh yeah, sorry, I did that to you. And you just said, <laughs> sorry, I gave you your hearing, but I also made you come back so I could shake your head. And they do very well. So I think, again, understanding the different compensatory mechanisms, the different inflammatory mechanisms in the inner ear and vestibular system end up being very, very important. 
Yeah, and I, I got a kick out of like talking to Walter Coots. I was texting with Jay Hunter a little bit, you know, and they're just like, how's your hearing? How's your hearing? And I'm like, I'm so dizzy. Like, I can't, you know, I was like, I like could care less about my hearing. I was just like, I was so dizzy and uncomfortable. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you're, you'll be fine. Like, you're going to compensate. Like, they're like, but how's your hearing? How's your hearing? So it was just funny. Um, and, and my hearing did basically fully recover. You know, I have a little bit of kind of like a weird diplocusis sometimes where like when I'm listening to music that ear I'll hear a little bit of like a second almost like it's a second sound but it's so minor like it's I don't even again I don't even think about it hardly but one thing that I do remember with my balance and working through physical therapy was the exhaustion so like I would be at 1 or 2 p.m. I would just be mentally exhausted like I would have to like take a nap and my physical therapist she was like yeah your brain is working a lot harder to do the things that you normally would just do and so you're gonna be tired and it was like I was like legit exhausted every day around you know early afternoon which was I didn't expect so I think that's great advice from your physical therapist if you think about it I'm watching you you're watching me we're moving our head in a certain way and we're nodding, we're shaking, we're this, we're that. Oh my God, imagine you doing this, right? These simple little head movements, eye movements in that time. So I will often tell my patients as they are recovering, because at three weeks to three months, that's a pretty gosh darn long period of time when you're in it, right? And I'll often say to them, why don't you divide your day into two days? So have your first half of the day, have a lie down, 20 minutes, kind of recharge, reset, and then start your day again an hour or two after that. So then you have basically two half days where you can actually accomplish things rather than one long day where you're just totally wiped out and you almost go backwards by the end of that day. So it's almost like having a siesta. It's almost like why don't we just become Spaniards and have a siesta right in the middle of the day? But it really, really helps people. And particularly if you have like an evening event. So now you're maybe four weeks, five weeks out and you're okay, but you're not great, right? You're, you're okay, but you're not yourself. Well, rather than what you would normally do, which is work all day and then kind of go into the evening event, that's when you really need to make that break happen do the recharge, and then go out for the evening, right? So even if it's a school event in the evening where you might in the past have rushed there, finish up your office hours, I'll do my charts, you know, in the night, blah, 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 all that stuff. You really literally have to say, no, I have to give myself a little bit of grace. I have to go. I have to lie down. I have to be able to function from that, whatever, six to eight or seven to nine period at night. And what happens when you do that, when you realize that, yes, this is part of my recovery, is that supertentorial component of why am I not perfect yet doesn't bother you so much. You're like, yes, this is my recovery and this is how I'm going to recover. And if you and your family understand, and by you I mean your patient, right? Your patient and their family understand that, yes, this is why your relative is so tired at the end of the day. And this is how you can help them be less tired. 
right? And then you'll notice that your days can get back to being long over time. Yeah. I mean, I leaned on my husband a lot because I mean, we have a toddler. And so he, <laughs> thank God for all, he, he picked up the slack a lot. And uh, yeah, but it, it was it's, it was a very humbling experience. It's definitely given me greater empathy for my dizzy patients. So as we round this out, I think this has been a really excellent kind of discussion and deep dive. Any other final pearls or other things that we need to know about this? So I think the final pearl I'll say, or maybe I'll say two pearls. What do you think? We'll give you two pearls. Of, of two, like a pair of earrings. <laughs> <laughs> One really key is to get them off the vestibular suppressants when possible. So that's a real crutch, and there's a real fear of getting off of the Valium or the Meclizine. Unfortunately, many of our colleagues in primary care and even in geriatrics leave people on particularly Meclizine for much longer than they should. So it's a real hassle to get them off, but it's very important because I think you really want them to be able to be at their best from a vestibular function perspective. So that's one. The other pearl is there is a eye test that I did not describe, which is looking for virgins' dysfunction. So all the testing that we talked about was either at rest or in the X or Y plane. So either in the X plane or the Y-plane, which is horizontal or vertical, but there is a Z-plane, right? So when you're walking up and down those grocery store aisles, you're actually using all three planes to maintain your balance. So what you want to do is you want to bring a pen from far and say, focus on my pen or my finger with both eyes, and then bring it near and ask them, when do they see two? And right there, about two to four inches from the nose, their eyes should cross and uncross real quick. And that's where that single object becomes two. And with people with virgin's dysfunction that can be unlocked or, or uncompensated for by either head trauma or viral labyrinthitis or some other vestibular insult, they will either never see two because their eyes kind of one skews over or they get so dizzy that they just close their eyes and they can't do it. You can do that also with near-far. So you have an object near, you have an object far, and have them look at the near object, far object, and their eyes should be very tight. They should be able to converge and diverge and converge and diverge without a skew deviation. And if you see that that is a problem, our friends in neurooptometry are amazing at helping them with vision therapy to correct these things. And I think that is something that can persist and get missed because we really do only test in X and Y plane. And I think we shouldn't forget the Z plane. That's a very good point. So one earring and two earrings. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time. This was fun. Again, if you guys missed episode 87, talk about sudden hearing loss, go check that one out check out She's On Call podcast and webcast. What else? And we'll, we'll post um, your um, socials as well as people, if people want to follow you or you can also plug them. Thank you. And, and I love the podcast. I get to be Ashley and I get to record podcasts with 
the guest editors of every single issue of Otolaryngologic Clinics of North America. It's really a fun way to do a deep dive into various subjects in otolaryngology. So if you get a chance to listen to them, please do and let me know what I can do to make them better. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jamila Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.